So the reading is from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read two sections, uh, sections um, beginning at verse 1 to 7, and then I'm going to skip to verse 17 and read to verse 24. And if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1148 in the standard size, and 1737 if you're weighed down by one of the big large print ones 1 Corinthians chapter 7 beginning verse 1 now for matters you wrote about it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman but since sexual immorality is occurring each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And then verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should, should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Well, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, then do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Thank you, John. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, please keep your finger in that passage. We'll come back to it. It is the difference, isn't it, between men and women, which is a beautiful thing and one of the great frustrations in marriage. Um, That means that... If we are to have marriages um, in, a, in the world that honour God, we have to work at them. And as I'm going to hopefully help us to see over this week and subsequent weeks, that's not just the responsibility of people who are married. It's the responsibility of all of us. In the same way where next week we look at singleness, singleness and honouring God in singleness is not just the responsibility of single people, but the responsibility of all of us. Um, but we have to work hard if we're going to have marriages that honour God. Um, just remember, if you cast your mind back to... Oh, this is just a, um, showing us where we're going. Uh, this week we're looking really at marriage that honours God. Next week, singleness that honours God. And then we'll finish the little series off in 1 Corinthians 7 at the beginning of July. Uh, commitment that honours God. Looking a bit at the issues surrounding divorce. 
um, and how we can um, support people in church um, who have gone through or going through those situations. Uh, two little weeks in June and early July um, where we're taking a break from that series. One is because in the evening there won't be an evening service on the 24th of June. We're going to be uh, joining up with other churches in Oxford and having a service all together as an expression of unity uh, and working together. Uh, and then on the 1st of July, David and Binny McKeer, who are missionaries that we support and pray for in the church, are going to be here and David's going to be preaching. Um, so that's just a little break. But our series is the, the stuff in yellow on the screen. Um, but just by way of recap, um, remember I said a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching that chapters 6 to 9 of 1 Corinthians have really two big issues on view. One is that of identity. Paul is trying to help the church in Corinth understand who they are in Christ. And the other issue that's related to that is that is an issue of witness. Knowing who I am in Christ has a profound impact then on the way that I relate to others around me, which affects the witness of the collective church to a watching world. So identity and witness is the kind of context. And the key verse we looked at, if you remember, was chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul says, and that is what some of you were. He's reminding this young church in Corinth that having put their trust in Christ, it's changed everything and their identity is no longer found in what society says about them or about their marital status or anything else. Their identity is found in Christ. And that's absolutely vital as we come to this chapter. I'm sure you began to look at this last week as Simon was preaching, thinking a bit about the sexual immorality that was one of the major issues in Corinth. Um, we, we can read about the temple in Corinth. It was the temple to the Greek god um, Aphrodite. The Roman name was Diana, the, the love goddess. And because of that, around the temple, there was a thousand shrine prostitutes. So people would come to the temple to worship a false god, but as part of their worship, they would also get embroiled in these unhelpful relationships with these shrine prostitutes, fulfilling sexual urges and, um, and fulfilling their own pleasure. It's a frightening mix of worship and immorality. And that is the sort of thing that's going on in Corinth. Just listen to one Roman philosopher called Cicero. He wrote this. Is there anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs with courtesans? But his view is contrary to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concession of our ancestors. When was that which was allowed not allowed? Just read it again and see if someone can just tell me in a summary, what is Cicero saying? Old language. In a nutshell, what's he saying? Have a stab, someone. Yeah. Do what you want. And who should anybody be to tell you you shouldn't do this? Do what the age says. Do whatever you want. This is the sort of licentious culture that was prevailing in Corinth. And actually, is it any different today? (laughs) Do what you want. Do what feels right. And that's some of the issues. And so the dangers that the church have got are partly, there's a danger, and Wellesley introduced us this to the, in the first talk in, in 1 Corinthians, the danger of Corinth getting into the church, the culture getting into the church. The other problem, which we read about um, further on in, in 1 Corinthians, is this idea that maybe there's an overreaction by the church. Because there's so much immorality, people in the church are sort of saying, listen, the spiritual is what really matters, the physical doesn't. So why do we bother with marriage at all? We should just pursue higher spiritual things. It's it's a false teaching called Gnosticism, the separation of the spirit and the physical. And these are two issues, immorality getting into the church and a distorted understanding of what it means to be spiritual. And this led the people in Corinth either to abstain from marriage completely or maybe just to get divorced because they thought that maybe marriage was the cause of their sin, forgetting it was a heart issue. Well, look at how Paul responds, chapter 7, verse 1. 
He seems to turn to answer a question they've asked. Now for the matters you wrote about. And it seems in quotes there that they've written to him saying, Paul, it seems that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And actually all the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a number of questions that the church have put to him. So if you want to see them, just jump forward to chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. So maybe they'd asked him about this. Come to chapter 12, verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts. They'd asked him about this. Come to chapter 16. Now about the collection of the Lord's people. So these people had written to Paul and had a whole series of questions and he then seeks to address them. And the first of those questions is addressed here back in chapter 7. Well, what Paul wants us to see, and we're going to look at this in three ways tonight, is three commitments associated with marriage. Three commitments. And here's the first one. Paul wants the Corinthian church, he wants us to recognize and to be committed to be content in our calling. This, this point here is really a foundation that we're going to look at again next week with singleness and in a few weeks' time with divorce. But it's a foundation principle. I'm sure as you drive around Long Crendon and the villages you live, you see houses everywhere. There's all these beautiful new houses going up on the Chisley Road just over here. There's loads of houses going up in Haddenham, in Aylesbury. There's loads of houses the far side of Tame. Up in Bicester, it's exactly the same. Now, I used to do a little bit of work on a, on a building site as a labourer, building timber frame housing. And the one thing that you notice when you're building houses is if the foundations aren't right, the houses will just fall down. Uh, Jeff spoke about this very thing at the wedding here yesterday about a foundation in marriage. And one of the key foundations that Paul wants to lay here for this Corinthian church, whether you're married or not married, whether you're divorced or not, is this here, commitment to being content in our calling. It comes up three times. Do you notice in our passage, and you can just jump forward to this, look at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live or remain as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Come to verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when they were called. Have a look at verse 24. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in. See, Paul is getting at this idea of contentment to our calling, and he's saying this is the key foundation for this whole chapter. So whatever your marital status, are you content in your calling? The problem is, and this would have been a problem in Corinth, it's a problem in our culture, that far, far too easily, you and I are, are defined by our marital status. Do you, do you notice this around you? And if you're single, you might particularly feel this. It seems that in society, many people will sort of put out this agenda that if you're not married, you're incomplete. Or if you're married to the wrong person then there'll be the right person, just dispose here and start again. Our identity is very bound up in our marital status, but Paul wants to say, foundation level, am I content in my calling? And the reason for this, and have a look at the statement on the screen, he says this, this is really a summary of what Paul is saying in this chapter. Friends, your calling to Christ eclipses your social situation but also transforms your situation so that you can serve God within it, Christ within it. I'll let you read that slowly. So just to give another illustration, away from marriage for a moment, if you're a teacher and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no longer primarily defined by the role that you have in life. You are a teacher. Paul says, no, you're a Christian. 
And being a Christian eclipses your social situation, but it transforms your situation. Being a Christian teacher is very different to being a teacher because being a Christian changes everything. So Paul wants to get, get, get into our bones this idea that our identity is not found in whether I'm married or whether I'm not married, whether I'm happily married or whether my marriage has failed and I'm divorced or someone's died or my marital situation is different. Paul wants us to see that our calling to Christ is where we find our identity. And then he goes on and says, listen, how can you be free? How can you be content in your calling? Have a look down to the passage. He says, listen, flee from sin. One way to be content is to flee from sin. Verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his wife and each woman with her husband. It's this idea of two people coming together and sticking together sexually because without that, there's a real danger of sexual immorality. Flee from sin, he says. Have a look at verse 5. And we'll come back to this later. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. And he goes on to talk about not being tempted by your lack of self-control. If I'm not content, I will pursue that which is not honoring to God, either outside of marriage or within my own marriage. Uh, Verse 9 gives you one other example. Talking about people perhaps who are engaged. If they can't control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says, if you want to be content in your calling as a married person or as a single person... The first thing to do is to flee from sin because there's always temptation to not honor God in the status where she has called you to for this season of your life. The second one, which you've already looked at, verse 7 and verse 24, is being content in the situation I'm in. And this can be difficult if you're a person who's not content. And there are plenty of good reasons why perhaps you wouldn't feel content. Some people are married and not content. Some people are single and not content. Many people will be divorced and not be content. But actually, Paul wants to say God has a purpose for all of us. He has a purpose in every situation that you're in, however hard it may be. So we can be content in our calling by fleeing from sin. We can be content in our calling by seeking to be content in Christ. And then he goes on and says, verse 19, seek devotion to the Lord above all else. And we'll come to this at the end of tonight. Have a look at verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandment is what counts. Now think about that statement from Paul. Paul is a Jew. Imagine if you were a Jew and you heard Paul say that. Circumcision means nothing. You'd be outraged. But what Paul is saying is no longer does your Jewishness define who you are. In the same way he could speak to a Gentile, no longer does your Gentileness define who you are. You're a Christian. You're a Christian Gentile or you're a Christian Jew, but you're a Christian. If society, our society, paid far less attention to our marital status as the thing that defines who we are, I'm sure we'd have more people who are content in singleness or in marriage than we do have. But because our society bombards us with all the things that we should be, and that is where we find our identity, often, sadly, these things come to define us instead of letting Christ define us. But as we're going to see further on in our reading The challenge for us is to be devoted to the Lord above all else. So this foundation stone, which is going to come up again next week and in subsequent weeks, is asking ourselves the question, am I committed to being content to my calling? Which means if I'm married, am I contently married? And do I trust that God has a purpose in it when it gets difficult as well as when it's great? If I'm single, am I content in my calling when I enjoy singleness 
and when I find it desperately lonely. And the same could apply for someone who's divorced. So there's our first commitment. But then Paul goes on to talk specifically of Christian marriage. Seek commitment to marriage and sexual union. Just have a look at that little cartoon. I don't know if you can, if you're married, I don't know if you can laugh at that and think, yeah, that's me. Or whether that's quite painful for you. I don't know if you've come across this book, uh, Why Men Want Sex and Women Need Love. We've got different understandings of what a sexual relationship looked like. And every couple has a different experience of sexual relationships. For some, sexual relationship is incredibly fulfilling and joyful. For others, it's very difficult emotionally, physically, for other reasons. Every married couple will have a different experience of their sexual relationship. And part of it, too, is that we're wired differently. Men are wired differently to women. Different women are wired differently to other women. Different men wired differently to other men. And in the ancient culture, sex was really viewed for two reasons. One was for reproduction, the second was for the pleasure of men. Paul wants to blow that out of the water and say that's not God's intention for sex at all. And so he wants to speak here specifically to those who are married. And he asks one very deliberate question. He says, are you investing in your sexual relationship? So let's have a think about this. And again, if you're single... This isn't a question of something that you can just switch off and this is irrelevant to you because one of the things you could pray for is pray for marriages in in the broader sense of connection, husband and wife. Of course, there's a sexual connection, but there's all the other connections and husbands and wives need your prayers because marriage can be challenging. But come to verse 3 to 7 because it's quite puzzling and quite difficult, the language Paul uses, but he wants to ask these questions. Are you investing in your sexual relationship? Have a look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. When you first read that, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? I thought when you got married, it was all fun. And here it seems to speak of sexual relationship being a duty. Now, of course, it's meant to be pleasurable for a man and a woman to come together within the union and the safety of a marriage. But there will be, the reality is there will be times in every marriage, however amazing and wonderful your sex life might be, when a sexual relationship is partly duty. Don't think duty as in, I've got to do something, but more duty in the sense of responsibility. That's what Paul goes on to say. Have a look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do you see a lovely picture here of mutual respect, one for the other? Our society says sex is about what I can get out of it. And so for a man, and forgive me for being quite blunt, many men will just say, once I reach a climax, that's it, I'm fulfilled, I can roll over and go to sleep, I'm happy. No, the Bible says a sexual relationship is about a man loving a woman and giving to her and serving her, and a woman loving a man and giving to him and serving him. And there's this mutual self-giving Sex is not meant to be selfish, it's meant to be in service of others. Interestingly, uh, Christopher Ashe has written two books on marriage. One's a small book, this is his big book. And the strap line to this big book on marriage is this, sex in the service of God. I wonder if you've ever considered sex as anything that serves. And yet, the premise of the Bible's teaching on physical intimacy is it's there to serve the other, not purely for personal gratification. 
Isn't there something wonderfully beautiful about a husband and wife who come together and nobody else in the world sees them at their most vulnerable like that? And even if a husband and wife stand before each other and the husband hasn't got a great chest and a perfectly shaped body and the wife hasn't got the perfectly formed body and the washboard stomach that all the models have, the husband and wife can stand before one another with all their lumps and their bumps and their squidge and everything else and say, I give myself to you completely. And nobody else gets to see this. Maybe, thank goodness, but you do. And there's this sense of oneness where these two people and only these two people come together. And there's something very beautiful about that. He goes on, verse 5, to say, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying, because the human urges and passions are so powerful, if you are married and you're not investing in a sexual relationship such that your husband and your wife is sexually satisfied, there will always be a temptation for one or both to seek that satisfaction elsewhere. It can be sexually, it can be emotionally. Plenty of affairs have started because one or other parties haven't been satisfied sexually. Plenty of affairs have started because a husband has not been attentive to his wife and the wife has found another man who just listens better. And very innocently they've just started the conversation and it's led to something. So when Paul here is saying, don't give up sleeping together, he's not just, he's not being crass about it. He's saying, there's a real reason for this. Come together emotionally and physically regularly to protect each other. It's an amazing act of protecting and giving and serving the other. Now, slightly tongue-in-cheek, sometimes it's possible within a marriage to use a sort of sexual relationship slightly as a bribe. If I give him what he wants, he might shut up about it for a few days. Maybe then he'll book me my spa that I've always wanted. I'm slightly, slightly joking, but we've got to be careful that we don't use this gift of God in some sort of bribery, even if it's subtle. Equally, sometimes sexual relationships can be withheld as a subtle form of punishment. Kind of, you know how it would go, after what you said to me yesterday, fat chance if you think I'm getting into bed with you. And sometimes it can be a joke between a husband and wife, but actually it can be a a subtle form of control, can't it? Withholding ourselves from the other. But Paul teaches here, no, come together regularly. doesn't mean sex in a technical sense always coming together, but come together emotionally, be physically connected in whatever way is pleasurable and right for you as a couple in that season of your life. Come together and express that devotion and that love and that kindness that you might cherish each other. Interestingly, this is actually a very serious issue for Paul. If you notice in verses 2, 3, and 5, there are three imperative verbs. These are instructions that come with force. He's not saying, I suggest you come together regularly. He's calling you to come together regularly if you're married. And the word he uses here of depriving in verse 5 is the same word that's used back in 6 that speaks of people defrauding or cheating one another. He says, you are cheating your spouse, and actually you're cheating yourself in your marriage if you're not prepared to work at a physical relationship. And most married couples will testify that you have to work at it. It's very difficult when we watch the films and physical chemistry and sexual relationships are just so easy all the time. And two people who don't know each other are met in a pub two minutes later and it's just electric. The reality is it's often not like that for people. We have to work at it. We have to create time for it emotionally. We have to invest in the relationship And that is why I think Paul is quite strong here. 
Well, why don't we deprive each other? Partly because of sexual immorality, you can just glance back to chapter 6, the back end of chapter 6 last week that uh, Simon was speaking about. If there's unrelieved sexual tension in a relationship, it can lead to immorality. Think about why there's the prevalence of pornography. It's not exclusively a male issue. Women struggle with it too. I don't say that in any means to be an excuse. But sometimes when a person is not satisfied, they'll pursue a full sense of satisfaction somewhere else. With pornography, with another person, it's horrific. But that's the reality. And so this is why Paul is strong here. He says, actually, this really matters. So come together regularly. But the second reason is actually... Sexual union isn't just about the physical act. Paul says God created it for something far more powerful. And that is about an emotional nurturing of a relationship between two people. It's a a highly spiritual thing, not just a physical animal act. Uh, Bruce Winters, a, a famous scholar, particularly on 1 Corinthians, and he said, Satan is the third member of the marriage bed. Don't let him come between you. And when a couple are not close, maybe they're not forgiving. If you're a couple and you're not investing time in each other, and this might be particularly challenging if you've got a young family who just suck energy all the time. If you're not investing in your relationship and connecting emotionally, your physical relationship will be out the window very, very quickly. Which is why Paul says, nurture that relationship, both to protect you, but also because as you come together physically and emotionally, you'll be drawing closer to God too. And that is one of the purposes of sex within marriage, is for two people who often are very, very different, who have to work at that relationship, grow closer to God as they work at it. So, a few little applications for you just to think about. I want to ask you if you're married, and you don't obviously need to answer this, you can just go away and reflect on it. Are you investing in your relationship, emotionally and physically, as is appropriate for you and your spouse? And if you're not, what could you do to help each other to invest in it? If you're someone here who is struggling sexually, can I encourage you to persevere? Persevere. And if you can draw one or two trusted friends around you who can pray for you and can encourage you, then persevere. Because all the devil wants to do is to draw you apart. And if he can use your sexual relationship as a way of drawing you apart, he will try and expose that. So pray that God would help you in those areas that you're wrestling with. And if you're a person who actually deep in your heart can admit, I've got a real problem with lust. Maybe I've got an addiction to pornography and I'm not prepared to admit it. Or dare I even say it, maybe if there's somebody here who you know you're caught in serious sexual sin, an affair or adultery or something like that, please don't suffer in silence. Speak to somebody that you trust. God sees your heart. God is a God who always forgives if we come back to him. But wherever you're at, if you're not investing seriously in your relationship in this way, please make it a priority for God's sake and for the sake of your marriage. And equally, if you're not married, please pray for marriages. Sometimes that can be difficult, particularly if you are uh, single and you long to be married. Maybe it's a particularly painful thing to pray. And if that's you, then maybe this wouldn't be such an appropriate prayer. But if you aren't married, perhaps... Um, you've been widowed or you've been divorced or you're not yet married if you're able to please pray for those who are married Uh, pray for those and particularly maybe pray for those you know who are married to those who don't share their faith because that can bring an added dimension and sometimes an additional strain i know those people would really value your prayers
Well, there's two commitments. A foundation commitment. Am I committed to being content in my calling? And we'll come back to that next time. Uh, For those who are married, am I committed to my marriage and to sexual union? And that's something we can all pray for each other. And the last one, again, is a a sort of summary. It's also a foundation. This plays into what we'll look at next week as well. As much as Paul says, be committed to your marriage and to physical relationship within it, he also says, but be committed to Christ above all else. And some people read 1 Corinthians 7, and you can read some scholars on it who seem to suggest that Paul has a bit of a downer on marriage. He's just sort of saying, look, be like me, be single, and you'll be free from all these worries. And he does speak of that in a particular context, and we'll look at that next week. But really what he's saying is, listen, I want you to have a sense of perspective. As much as I'm calling you to invest in marriage, just have a sense of perspective. See, maybe you're here and you really enjoy your marriage. Paul says, have a sense of perspective. Don't let your marriage be everything or your soul's sense of identity and joy. Because reality is it often won't be. Uh, If you're here and you're not enjoying marriage... He says, have a sense of perspective. Don't lose sight of God's ultimate goal for you is not always your happiness, but more so your godliness. And if maybe through a difficult relationship, God can grow your character and teach you to be more reliant upon him, then actually by his grace, that's a wonderful gift. Equally, if you're divorced or you're single and you long to be married, be careful that you don't at least idolize marriage and treat it as a vehicle for happiness, as if that would complete you or solve whatever it is that you're grappling with. Because the reality is, it won't. It might solve one problem, but it probably will create another. But Paul is saying, listen, above all else, be committed to Christ. Have a look at verse 26. Paul, in the context, is saying, listen, life is full of troubles and difficulties. He refers in verse 26 to the present crisis. Uh, No scholar really knows what that means, but most seem to think it's something about possibly a famine in Corinth. Maybe the physical pressure that the famine was putting on the Corinthian church meant that maybe relationships were not being invested in because there were other things that seemed to be pressing in on the marriage. But look again, verse 28, Paul describes there being many troubles in this life. And then in verse 29, he talks about time being short. So in summary, what he's saying is, you and I need a perspective, because marriage is not everything. I'm just going to read verses 26 to 31. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as those who do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this present world in its present form is passing away. Paul is not advocating neglect in marriage at all. He's using quite provocative terms of comparison to say, in a relative sense, your ultimate priority is not your marital status or your relationship. Your ultimate priority is to Christ. And so he says in that context, are you investing in your marriage in light of eternity? And we'll look at this next week. Are you investing in your singleness in light of eternity?
So as I come to a close, there are the three commitments. Firstly, being content to our calling. Recognizing there are seasons of life. And God in his wisdom has given us all different gifts. For some that is marriage, for some that is not marriage. For some that is grace through a painful marriage or through a broken marriage. But God has given us each a gift and he calls us to be content. And where that's hard, we need to pray for each other and we need to encourage each other. We need to be uh, committed to marriage and to sexual union. If you're married, you've had the challenges. Please invest in your marriage. And for all of us, please let us together pray for the marriages of this church. Our culture, uh, last year, 2017, was the first year where more children grew up or were born in the UK with parents out of wedlock because of divorce, because of cohabitation. It's the first year ever in history. If that trend continues... All the more reason for Christian marriages to stay together as a witness to an ever-fractured world. But finally, a, a hint of perspective for all of us, whether we're married, single, divorced or other. Remember, and may this encourage you, that your commitment to Christ is the one that comes above all else. Back to chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, that is what some of you were. And friends, it's in light of all that Christ has done for us in redeeming us and drawing us to himself. It's in light of responding to that, that we will have marriages in our church that are rooted in Christ. That is where we find our identity. And when we have marriages that are rooted in Christ, that is when marriages will be far more powerful in our witness to an ever broken and fractured world. So should we come together now and let's pray that God would give us the strength to grow healthy marriages that honor him for the glory of Jesus.